This is the Press Play Podcast, brought to you by Real Resilience. It's episode 13 of the Press Play Podcast. That number may be unlucky for some, but not for us, as this episode we feature a man who has taken it upon himself to produce not only one, but two new tape recorders. Now, I've been trying to secure a chat with Costas Metaxis for a while now, ever since I saw him designing and building his TRX tape machine. It took a fair few messages back and forth to fix up an interview, but I'm glad we did. Costas is, as you will hear, a great talker, and he takes us through his early years in high-end hi-fi and recording to the story of how the TRX and recently the Papillon came about. We talked for well over an hour, so I've split this podcast into two parts. Here's part one. Subscribe to the Press Play podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your pods. It's a pleasure to welcome to the Press Play podcast somebody I have been probably chasing via messaging in Facebook for quite a while because he has produced some uh, fantastic products in the audio field, and in particular, a tape machine followed up by a second tape machine, and that is Mr. Costas Metaxis. Of, uh, now, Costas, is it Metaxis and Sins or Metaxis Audio Systems? It's Metaxis and Sins. Uh, on account that uh, when I first started the business, it was Metaxas Audio Systems because obviously at the time I didn't have any kids and uh, I was only a kid myself. I only started when I was 20, 21 years old. And uh, of course, uh, this last uh, collection over the last, say, five, six years has also been uh, with the help of my children, my two sons, uh, Andreas, who's about 25 now, and Alessandro, who's about 23, half Greek, half Italian. So fiery and spirited, as you can imagine. Um, so that's why it's Metaxas and Sins. Of course, the joke was on sons, but uh, I, I always uh, felt that uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of uh, feeling about pleasure was that it was a sin. So, of course, what we do now is a sin, uh, and that's why we sort of think that's quite funny. Yeah, I, I wondered initially if it was, uh, you mentioned about your son in Italian origin, where sins was uh, sons in another language, but I can see the, the connection now. Yeah, it's definitely not, definitely not biblical. <laughs> now, if we rewind right the way back, tell me about your background. Tell me how did you get into audio, and then we'll move on to high-end audio. Okay, I think uh, the irony was, like most people in audio, uh, well, actually not so much most people in audio, but... I have to say I was a frustrated musician initially and as a, at a young age. So I think it all starts from a real passion for music. That's the first thing. And uh, so obviously I couldn't afford to buy expensive hi-fi when I was a teenager. Uh, most of my friends were playing with cars. I was playing with hi-fi. And this is back in the uh, 70s in Melbourne, Australia. And um, so uh, I was obviously dabbling with speakers in, in the early days, of course, the only speakers you could put together yourself and afford were, you know, clones of things like Kef. And Kef were the, uh, like the leaders. They had the most interesting things going on. Uh, but it wasn't until I bumped into a thing called a Quad ESL 57 that I actually started to get glimpses and the idea that high end can actually sound real. So, um, that was the catalyst, and of course, that sort of uh, got me into that sort of world. And of course, the amplifiers I made back in the day, they were good enough to drive a Quad 57, which is a very difficult load. And of course, that helped. So that was the that was the starting point. But we're talking now at the age of say 16, 17. So you know, just before I went to university, and um, 
And then uh, the joke was when I went to university in Melbourne, I was transferring after a few years to Germany, and I thought I'd better take some equipment with me uh, because, of course, I could never afford to buy high-end audio equipment in Germany. And um, I was very fortunate that some of the people I fell in with were high-end audio crazy guys with parents, though, not themselves, who had, you know, very expensive hi-fi systems. And um, uh, one of the chaps uh, uh, introduced me to a dealer in Munich, sorry, in Mannheim in Germany, near, near Stuttgart. And uh, they heard what I was doing back then, and it was such a revelation for them, which I thought was quite funny because I never, ever, ever heard some of these big brands that we, we talk about, uh, you know, irreverently and reverently today, uh, you know, the Levinsons, the Accuphasers, all that sort of stuff that was back in those days. Uh, the audio researchers, of course, the Macintosh was very big in Germany too. So when uh, we had a chance to audition one of my little preamps at the shop, um, they were gobsmacked that this was uh, a lot better. And, uh, of course, I was gobsmacked because I never even heard any of the other things before ever. And um, and I didn't realize my stuff was that good. So the, the irony was I never, ever thought I was so good. I just always thought, oh, okay, they're not making things as good as I thought. And um, so that's how it all started. And then, of course, uh, a very good review in one of the German magazines, the equivalent of, say, The Absolute Sound from America, a guy called Klaus Renner, who said, basically, this is the thing. And, of course, in Germany, when you are the thing, what they call absolute Spitzenklasse reference, then that's it. You become, you know, number one of the hit parade and everybody wants you. So I was the darling of Germany for, like, the reference in most of the magazines for almost 10 years. And back in those days, you know, I was up against all the big brands, the cellos from Levinson, of course, um, Mark Levinson's products himself, uh, obviously Audio Research, Macintosh, all that. So in Germany, I was taken very, very seriously. But at the same time in Australia... <laughs> <laughs> they they wouldn't take me seriously at all. So it was really quite funny that, uh, you know, I had the street cred in Europe, but no street cred in Australia. But in Australia, at the same time, because of my reputation in Europe, I was able to secure uh, distribution for other product lines. And so then I started importing, you know, some of the other big names like Jadi and all this sort of stuff that became famous later in America and in the UK. Um, and so I had a front seat to, to listening to all this stuff. And uh, I think the next uh, important piece of equipment that I got was a Goldman reference, which I had back in the day. We're talking now early 80s when they cost, you know, we were we were selling them for like $12,000 back then retail. So, of course, uh, you could imagine now, of course, they're like 100000 or something. Uh, but um, so that was important. But I still didn't feel that that was the ultimate and a friend of mine, who was my Swiss distributor at the time, uh, said, listen, you should try these uh, Stellavox machines. And I've never, ever, ever heard of Stellavox uh, up until that point. I'd heard about Nagra. And so I thought to myself, yeah, but don't you mean Nagra? And they said, no, 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 Stellavox. And I said, well, what's, you know, why would I bother with a Stellavox? And they, and he said, listen, I'm an engineer, as you know, and I can tell you this is a much better product. So basically, I bought the Stellavox from Switzerland from Calais himself. So I got, you know, factory fresh brand new machines. My TD9 was number 13. So I was one of the early TD9s. Uh, and uh, my SM8 was obviously 83 or 84, something around then. And um, so they're brand spanking new machines. But I also felt even with tape recorders at the time, 
they had limitations because they were trying to be broadcast ready and all this other stuff. So they had to have limiters on and all this, which I obviously threw away, pulled out and got rid of because they obviously affected the sound quality. So the Stellarbox was my uh, reference at the time. And this is a time, as I said, in the mid-80s when the whole business of tape recorders was going bankrupt. And uh, so essentially I continued in the 90s with tape recorders, of course, in the 2000s with tape recorders. And of course, ironically, around you know late 2000s, tape became fashionable again. But for me, it never stopped being fashionable. Um, now, the mistake that I made was that I actually sold my Stellarbox machines towards the end of uh, 2000, about 9, 2010, because I tried, I was trying to force myself to develop digital products to be good enough to replace tape. And of course, that never happened. Um, and then the other problem I had was the people I sold my Stellarbox stuff to, I sort of arranged with them that if I wanted to buy it back, I could buy it back as a, at a premium just to make sure I had access to it. Um, and of course, that didn't happen because they didn't want to sell it back to me, sadly. So then I had to buy uh, whatever I could find on the marketplace, which uh, sadly was never in good nick, needed a lot of attention, all that sort of stuff. So that's basically what forced me <laughs> to make tape recorders. So you were using these uh, machines to record rather than just replay? I mean, you were doing some um, direct-to-tape recordings. Is that is that what you were yeah, doing? Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Recording rather always, than replay? Always, always, always. I, I can actually send you waves of the first recording I ever did. And the irony was it was a Geelong Grammar, which was a concert done by the kids. Geelong Grammar, by the way, was the school in Melbourne or not in Melbourne, Melbourne, just outside of Melbourne, that, that uh, Prince Charles went to as a kid. And uh, they had a pianist called Boris Guslitzer, a pianist who was a teacher for piano. He was absolutely almost like Svartislav Richter. I was recording him playing uh, something from, I think, from Liszt or Chopin, I can't remember. And uh, so this is going back now a long, long time. This is almost 40 years ago. And uh, the joke was, that was my first ever recording, and when I dubbed it to digital and sent it to people, you know, years later, I had people saying, this is like uh, Lewis Layton with the Chicago Symphony. And I thought, hold on a second, that's the first recording I've ever done. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, you see, that was the irony. The irony was all I did was sit on a, on a trestle, put the tape recorder, and in front of the trestle, put the two microphones about, say, six, seven feet apart, and that was it. And so I thought to myself, oh, okay, I'm a recording engineer now. So, of course, I developed a bit further from there afterwards and realized that was just a lucky, you know, thing, only because the performance and the performer was so good that, uh, you know, it was just uh, serendipity. But, uh, but it did force me then to realize that I could do recordings as good as, you know, the people that I used to use as references so uh, and then, of course, the the endless list of clubs for jazz, uh, all that sort of stuff uh, proceeded after that. And people used to think I was nuts because they'd see this crazy guy with this tape recorder, this portable tape recorder wired up with just two microphones in it. Of course, back in that day, they didn't. Most of the people didn't even know what a tape recorder was, particularly the young people. So it was actually quite amusing. 
you've got an obviously an electronics and a technical background, and we will come on to your um, taxes and sins products uh, a little bit later. But just looking at those um, from a from a purely visual point of view, do you have a design background as well? Because you seem to have um, with the current range of products, it's a synergy of the two. It's high end electronics, it's high end audio, and we've got the, these high end tape machines that you're working on. But they also look aesthetically beautiful. So tell me about the the actual design aspect of the products you make. Uh, okay, now that, that's a an interesting question because when I first started making equipment as a kid, because remember I was started off very very young, um, and I never went to design school. I never had a chance to go to design school. In fact, I was supposed to become a doctor. That was the whole point. My parents wanted a doctor in the family. They didn't want all the other stuff. They didn't want a musician. They didn't want a designer. They didn't want any of that stuff. Not that I even knew that I had it in me. But um, the truth was, obviously, I must have had something in me aesthetically from the early days because even some of the early stuff was always a little bit different to the rest of the stuff that was out there at the time. But there was only so much you could do because of the technology the design bug started much later in life for me, probably in my, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago when I started working more with CAD. And uh, I wasn't one of these designers that could just scribble on a piece of paper and then give it to someone and say, make that for me. So for me, luckily, when the technology became available with CAD systems and you could actually play on a laptop or a computer and uh, then just play with shapes and all that sort of stuff, I started sculpting with that. And also, because I didn't know what I was supposed to do or not supposed to do, I would just enjoy myself rather than follow the rigors of engineering or strict engineering. So I discovered ways of playing with uh, basic CAD systems in a more abstract way. And uh, then that led to some work that I did for other companies, like Estu Dupont, that I make I designed some pens for their, their, their Hawk creation collection. Uh, people like uh, Lepe, which makes clocks in Switzerland. And because obviously it's very mechanical and things like that. So it came from there. And then when I was thinking about the hi-fi, because I had a bit of a break from the hi-fi, I thought, what could I do that would be really interesting in hi-fi? Because, you know, to be bluntly honest, to do another box with heat sinks on the sides and, you know, connectors on the back and a front panel, uh, I thought, no, there's, no, there's too many of those in the world. There's no need for any more of those. So... One of the furniture pieces I designed a Chez Lounge for an Italian company, and that sort of uh, had a lovely curvature, which then became the foundation for the amplifiers. And uh, then slowly that developed into the turntable uh, and also into uh, – and, of course, the tape recorders. We did a crazy tape recorder at the start when I first started playing with the tape recorder concept. And at that early stage – I was hoping to work with with some of the old people from Stellarbox that I still knew, and uh, we were thinking of doing something more mechanical. But sadly, the the person I was do- dealing with at the time passed away, so that was the end of that idea. So for me, the evolution into the tape machine, which probably the Papillon is more the new one, the big one, is more evolutionary in terms of its shape. All that uh, really came because. I had the opportunity to do a tape machine. I've basically had to do one for myself. And fortunately enough, I um, found the right people to work with because, as you can imagine, uh, the old, the whole technology of tape died with these companies back in the, you know, late eighties and nineties. 
And um, of course, a lot of the experts, a lot of the veterans that were working at these companies, most of them were retired, uh, you know, quite old. Even even Georges Keller himself from Stellarbox, he's still around, but he's in his 90s. You know, I bother him from time to time, but he says, Costas, I can't remember what I was doing back in my bloody 40s, you know, forget about it. I have to say, if you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, do take a look at Costas's site, which is metaxis.com. And all I can say is that they remind me of, of products. So if you know the film Alien, um, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of the, it's, it's molten aluminium. Costas is using is aluminium as, as, as far as I can say. You do correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but sure. as, as your base product. Um, I mean, there's some fantastic products on here, such as uh, your um, siren speakers and the uh, Opus amplifier. But what I really stands out for me is your Marquis preamplifier for your headphones, which is, I mean, do take a look at it on the site. It is a skull shape with the amplifier built in and obviously the skull i can see doubles is your your stand for your headphones it's the sort of great way to store your headphones um and as you mentioned earlier you, you the tape machines you started to get into and that they have a des- design philosophy as I, I i can see all the way through your product range but you've got speakers you've got headphone amplifiers you've got amplifiers so why did you decide I'm going to get into tape. Tell me about the, I mean, it's two machines you make now, the TRX and the Papillon, is that correct? So yeah, why did you get into, in, why did you decide I'm going to make these machines? I got the idea to get into tape after looking into it mechanically, thinking I could try and do a slightly bigger version of the SM8 that I, I loved very much, uh, which was the mechanical machine from Stellarbox. Um, but the problem was obviously the technology or, and all that that came with it it was not going to be any good to handle large reels. It was really designed for small reels because in those days they were the equivalent of a, a journalist's, you know, uh, sort of recorder to record interviews like we're doing now. And um, so when you try to push them, like even the Nagra 4S, the same, you had to use an adapter to use bigger reels, etc. So they were never designed for that. So therefore, when I looked into it, I found very quickly that it wasn't going to work. Um, so I had to look at newer technologies. And the irony is that uh, things like the electric cars that you see now coming out and electric motorbikes, electric everything, they are actually the perfect uh, objects for motors for tape recorders because you're looking for something with high torque at low speeds. And in the past, that was very difficult to find uh, easily. Uh, and also in the past, the problem you had with tape recorders is that the first thing that you had to sort out, particularly when you're dealing with large reels, is a thing called the break, because you could never uh, electronically break uh, the reels like you can now, because obviously in an electric car, they don't have anything mechanical as brakes. It's all done through the computers, all done through the controllers, and they have to be able to sink an enormous amount of heat and an enormous amount of current to be able to do that. So you see, the technology is there now for tape recorders. That's the irony. But the complexity is something which is another thing altogether because unlike in the old days where you obviously could run things with a few switches and a few capacitors and resistor networks, now essentially you've got uh, each motor has its own controller, so it has its own computer, and then you have to have one master computer which brings them all together. So it was a marriage of, I managed to find a few people that could help me with that. 
and that, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought. And um, that was the key. So once I could get the transport side going, I'd already done uh, enormous amounts of work on the electronic side, the, you know, the tape preamps, the recording amps, all that sort of stuff. So I knew all that side from my Stellarbox work. And of course, I borrowed heavily from the Stellarbox because at the end, his simplicity is is incredible. That's why it sounds so good. So it was then the fact that I had to marry that Stellarbox electronics with a better transport because I still have some Stellarbox machines here, which I use as a reference. So for me, the idea was to get it to the point where with the same electronics with Stellarbox machines, I got my transport sounding enormously better. And uh, that was possible, but only because I'm the same person doing both things. Because in the old days, as you can imagine, the chap who did the mechanical stuff on a tape recorder didn't give a banana about the guy who did the electronics. That was another engineer's job. So the irony was very few companies actually had one person who was able to sort of oversee the, the, the work between one and the other. And the other irony was, for me, was as I started getting more and more into it, I started to realize that the actual tape medium had even more potential because the machines that we know of, quite frankly, have never been uh, sort of tweaked up or supercharged or whatever you want to call it for a high-end type sound. So the reality is um, what I found out very quickly was just playing with things like the suspension in the tape path or playing with the rigidity or the stiffness of the motors and all that sort of stuff would do enormous things to the sound. All of a sudden, I was able to improve the sound of the electronics by simply improving the sound of the transport. And uh, so that's what's, that's what's been fueling me. Now, with the bigger machine, again, more experiments, more opportunities to be able to push it even further because I don't have the limitations of the size. Because, of course, with the first machine, the TRX, I was trying to make a location recorder that could work on batteries, that could go out in the field and could do that sort of work, which is what I'm used to. But uh, obviously, um, with the studio type uh, work, there was absolutely no limitations. I can go up to one inch if I wanted to. Find the Press Play podcast on SoundCloud and our YouTube channel. Just search for Real Resilience. We'll leave part one of our chat with Costas Metaxas there. The Metaxas and Sins website can be found at www.metaxas.com. That's M-E-T-A-X-A-S dot com. And there are videos on YouTube and Vimeo as well. Just search for Metaxas and Sins. Part two will follow in the next episode, where we continue to talk about the design and birth of the TRX and Papillon, and answer a question I know everyone who has seen these machines ask. How much are they? Press Play, the Real Resilience podcast, dedicated to all things reel-to-reel. That's a wrap for episode 13. My thanks to Costas for his time and to you for listening. Seeing brand new tape recorders being created truly shows faith in the format we love and must be applauded. Quarter inch or two inch, two track or 24. It's not how big your tape is, but how it sounds. So until the next time, let's keep it real.